Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. I've always just really been focused instead of some kind of big, I don't know, exit or event, instead really focused on the next best thing for the company and what's feeding me and what's fun about this and to make sure that it's really good for the people around me. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. We all had a dream going into this life, but so rarely do most of us actually achieve that dream. We're busy, but we're broke. We're rich, but we're working ourselves to death. We spend our days crunching numbers when all we wanted to do was cook, but some of us have it figured out. And there's hope in that for all of us. Today, we chat with Kim Malik, the founder of Salt and Straw, an ice cream company that abides by every foundational business principle while breaking every rule in the restaurant industry. I took a job as a barista at Starbucks Coffee in 1989. It was a tiny company. And then I parlayed that into a job when I graduated from college. And my mom felt really bad for me that I didn't get a very good job (laughs) out of college. And I had to really reassure everybody that I believe in this guy, Howard Schultz, and this is going to be a big thing someday. And it was just so cool to be part of building something and creating something that I could see as much bigger than me or what we were doing today. And so I think that's probably what got me really excited about the opportunity. I mean, the work was cool because when you're at a company that's that small, you're doing everything and you're part of all the conversations. So it was fascinating to get to hear from the folks who are creating the strategy when you're a 20 year old college graduate, you know, how we're going to go about that and having a voice at the table. So it was really fun and hard and I didn't know enough to know any difference. So we worked really hard and made it happen. But I think that idea of being part of something bigger than yourself is what left the biggest mark on me and what I hope to kind of carry forward to my company. What did you learn about marketing? I'm curious because this was before the advent of the iPhone. I mean, the the internet was in its very... You know, oh well, before the invention, I, just, R- right. I joined. Yeah, I mean, I think it was 1993, and email was just getting started. I mean, I would print out my emails and file them in my paper. <laughs> and I remember I found one the other day that I had printed out, and it said the big announcement, and it was we were opening a new store in downtown Seattle because you know we didn't open that many stores back then. So I learned so much about marketing. No one knew what a latte was or nobody had heard of our brand and we didn't have tons of money. And so for us, it was all about that going in and I was really part of the team that was opening new markets. And so we would go into these new cities and get to know 
the PTA and the city council and the neighborhood association and personally attend all those meetings and bring coffee and do coffee tastings and just the ultimate grassroots marketing, like earning it the hard way. (laughs) And so that was really my first entry point into this idea of marketing. It was on the ground, grassroots, being part of the community. A lot of PR really relying heavily on telling our story through the media. So that that's what I learned, relationship building. When you don't see a ton of that in the way that independent restaurants work and build their brands. Like it makes sense when you say Starbucks did that, but you would think that an Italian place on the corner would benefit from the same practices, right? Yeah, I can remember when I started Salt and Straw, when we first opened in Los Angeles, we were getting ready to open um, Abbott Kinney. And we went to the city council meeting and I got a position to talk. And I said, oh, I just want to introduce myself. I'm going to have a new business and I want everybody to know who I am. And here's what we're about. And it was really quiet. And this one woman said, we're just kind of quiet because nobody ever does this. (laughs) (laughs) And I learned how to do it at Starbucks. Like you show up and you meet people and you talk to people and that's three quarters of what you need to do. And even now, like we pay our managers to go do that on a local basis to make sure we maintain that. You're exactly right. It's important for everybody. And it's so hard to do when you're running your business and you have so much going on. To show up for those meetings and be part of those community activities is critical. But there's something to be said for doing the things as an owner that only the owner can do. And no one's going to evangelize your brand the way that you do. And so, and I do want to get into the inception of Salt and Straw, but I think this is a great moment to talk about prioritizing scooping ice cream versus like inspiring souls. And so how did you differentiate? Yeah, there's that whole idea of working in your business versus working on your business, which I remember I read that book, the good old e-myth early in my company's history. And it felt so freeing because I always felt like a slacker if I wasn't behind the counter and working double time to serve customers and literally support the team. And then I realized the compromises I'm making by doing that and not setting the business up to be successful by paying attention to the right marketing plans and sales plans and even all the administrative and HR that needed to be done. I mean, that's setting the company up for long-term success. So I think you're right. It's the the soul feeding, the bigger purpose that you can start to work towards and see and set up for people that they're then able to envision for themselves and be a part of. I'm sure that for the folks listening, I'm sure they're like, man, she worked like directly for Howard Schultz. What an amazing opportunity. (laughs) That was the playbook that she used when she immediately turned around and created Salt and Straw. But there was another mentor that you worked with before that. And it's Bono from U2 over at Red. (laughs) which is incredible, by the way. And I'm curious to know, in that relationship, what did you learn about leadership that you carried through your own path of entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think the biggest moment I remember our team working for Bono, we were part of a small group and it was a startup too. We were working at Product Red, but we were even a subdivision of that because we were starting a new music service. And he has close ties with Apple. And so it all made sense to be doing this. But at one point, things weren't going very well. And there were just a series of issues that we were dealing with. 
And I remember my boss and I sitting in a room and we were just feeling really worried and down and working double time to try to get everything back on track. And we got a note that Bono wanted to talk to us. And we were kind of worried, like, were we going to get a talking to or what the heck is going to happen here? And I remember he got on the phone and the first thing he said was, I am so sorry that this is happening and I'm calling to figure out how I can help. Here's where I think things that I did probably contributed to this that I'm regretting and let's figure this out. And it was such a cool conversation to be part of because as a leader, it sure is easy to go to that place of fear (laughs) and point fingers and great people and try to... (laughs) do all the things that human nature leads you to do. But at that moment, I saw like we were able to really unlock some magic together through that power of ownership as a leader and positivity and that vision of being able to see a path forward out of a really dark, hard time. I mean, of course, he's like that because he is magical. (laughs) But to see it firsthand had a big impact on me. I've consumed a ton of content. I'm not going to tell you that like I read and listened to absolutely everything you've done, but pretty close to it. And there's this through line mm-hmm. where you just seem to be a very intentional person. And I wanted to ask you in the early days of researching for this interview, I wanted to say, what did you choose to open an ice cream parlor? But I think that there's a better question than that, which is in your mind, why did the world need another ice cream parlor? Yeah. So, I mean, The vision of an ice cream parlor or an ice cream shop came to me in 1996 while I was living in Portland. And it was so crystal clear to me. If anyone's ever spent any time in Portland, I swear to God, it is like really unique when it comes to the spirit of community and collaboration that you find here. And I truly thought ice cream would be a perfect way to reflect that. I mean, I'm still best friends with Lori Wolfery, who I met walking down the street. She founded Oregon Chai. And I met her while we were trying to pay our parking meters. And we just became really good friends. And that's the kind of city that this is. She'll invite you over. People bring you in. They lift you up. And that spirit is what inspired me to want to do ice cream. Because I thought people would be hanging out. They could run into their neighbors kind of the essence of like a European coffee shop where you would spend hours on the sidewalk talking and just enjoying the sunshine. So it was kind of in service to the idea of community. And early in my career, I tried to leave Starbucks once to go into the Peace Corps. And then I worked for Red. Like I always have had this pull to really have a social mission. And I think what I realized through my career is that business can really be such a great force for good. And so I had this idea that ice cream could show up in a powerful way in communities and be of service. And so you opened the first location. And from an ideation to execution perspective, how would you grade yourself on your first try? A, B, C, D? Oh, geez. (laughs) (laughs) On my first try... Probably I'd give us a B plus. We had a pretty great team of friends helping us. So we had a just a lovely store design with an idea about how we wanted it to look and what we wanted it to stand for. We wanted it to be like an old school mercantile where you would run into the guy who picked your strawberries that morning, that kind of feel. 
And my friend Sarah Littlefield helped me design it. And my friend Chris Jordan came up with all the branding and he's a genius and kind of that same essence. And so it looked like we kind of knew what we were doing a little bit, (laughs) even though it was just me with my credit cards and my 401k money, you know, we were totally bootstrapping it. And my cousin had joined me and started making ice cream. And, you know, it was early days for him. I mean, he's come a long way since, but he just did such a good job of encapsulating this idea of reflecting community through ice cream with all these collaborations. And he's still doing 10 years later. I think it's what gets us up in the morning. And so customers just seem to really click into that. Like, okay, we're here to learn about other things going on in the community through ice cream. And I can remember the day we opened standing behind the register and this woman standing across from me and there'd been a story in the Oregonian about our opening and she started crying and she said, you did it. You left this big corporate job and you started your own business and here you are, you've done it and it's open. And so it was just this great response we got from the community, which was such an honor. We also started with great company culture. And I say that because culture isn't what you say, it's what you do. And you guys took some massive risks in those early days. Can you talk to me about the benefits that employees got in those early days? and how that's evolved over time? Yeah, it was sort of crazy. I mean, just taking a chapter from the Starbucks book, I mean, before we had any kind of healthcare, Howard had, you know, full health insurance for part-time employees. And so we wanted to do the same thing. I think we opened in August and on Valentine's Day, February. So just a few months later, we launched health insurance for all of our employees. And, you know, it's super expensive. And we didn't even know if we were really going to make it through the winter but we took a leap. It seemed like it was going pretty well and we could it penciled that we could afford it. And man, I mean, just those general shows of generosity, I think, paid off in huge dividends with people just feeling really, again, part of something bigger than themselves and educating people about how we're doing what we're doing and providing growth opportunities. I mean, just today, we had an all company meeting. We have one once a month. And we give an update about the company and how we're doing and what's coming up. And then we do an educational session. And like today, someone who's fighting to abolish the current state of our criminal justice system spoke to us to kick off Black History Month. And like those sorts of investments in our team and their education and benefits, I think it's kind of like it's a generous way to do business and just shows, you know, how you can invest in people and they show up. You get 10 times the return, that's for sure. I would also assume that it also lures people into working for the company and it certainly helps with retention. I was having a conversation with someone literally today and they opposed this question to the group. They said, do you think $50,000 a year for a server working four to five days a week is reasonable compensation in the Denver area. Like the guy was super specific. And my response was, I don't really think it's about money. I don't think people left the industry in droves because of money. And the purpose that you're talking about and the purpose that you have implemented into your restaurant, and it's not just about the education, it's about the continuing education. It's about the enrichment. It's about mutual investment. And I bring all of these platitudes up, but you do it in practical application. And I'm just curious to know, has your experience been 
Not that it pays for itself over time in a very generic way, but dollars and cents, it pays for itself. I couldn't agree more with you. I don't think people are leaving our industry because of pay necessarily. It's like we were talking about the start. Like, do they feel part of something bigger than themselves? Do they feel respected? Is there a future? I mean, gosh, as we've gone through the pandemic and when we just did an employee survey and got you know, feedback that people do not trust our company as much as they did pre-pandemic. And I think we're all in that position. And so we're all talking about it. We talked about it on the town hall. Like, what does that mean? And how do we build back as an industry to where it's better than it was before? All of our teams are showing up on the front line during the pandemic and all the things that are really scary. And so doing what you say you're going to do as we build back from what was a really hard time. I mean, we closed down all of our shops. And we had to make really hard decisions to save the company. And now um, holding the flag high around our values and holding each other accountable to that and keeping open communication of what we're doing well and what we're not doing and being open about that, I think is just more important than ever. But, you know, we have low turnover. We have great, I mean, yes, all the things. It absolutely pays off. I mean, we have the best customer satisfaction scores, all the numbers that you want to see, we have them. And it's a thousand percent due to our culture and our team on all fronts, without question. We always say ice cream is 49% of what we do and that people and experience is 51%. Prior to the pandemic, I could barely use my iPhone. I'm a restaurateur, not a tech guru. But over the last two years, we've seen that tech can play a vital role in helping us make more money and save money. And that tech can show up at some pretty unlikely places, like your kitchen sink. Dawn Professional is a detergent and degreaser that can help reduce your labor expense and your overhead on cleaning supplies through leveraging the latest technological innovation in cleaning products. Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy Duty Degreaser is specifically formulated to cut grease two times faster versus the leading food service degreasers. While Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink, reducing sink changeover versus the leading competitor's professional dish soap. Save time and money by upgrading to Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent and Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy-Duty Degreaser from PNG Professional. Over the last 20 months, everybody spent a lot of time talking about diversifying revenue streams, which means different things for different people. But one thing that has become incredibly clear, and it's that there is a direct-to-consumer market out there for restaurants of all sorts, and that if you can access that market, it can be incredibly lucrative. And I know that that's been a central focus for you since before the pandemic. And I'm curious to know, one, how much has it impacted your ability to grow and your stability during the pandemic? And then what's the trajectory for that now? Yeah. I mean, I'm so happy coming out of the pandemic. We're, our company's stronger than we've ever been, and we're in a really good position we're going to open, I think, 10 stores this year. We have a lot of big plans on the horizon, but a big part of that is the direct business. And if you look at most 
brands in our category are moving into grocery and doing all kinds of mass distribution. And we're not doing that. I mean, it's really important for us to stay in control of our customer relationship and you know, kind of our artisan roots. And what's cool is the direct channel, like you're describing, gives you the opportunity to grow, but still maintain that control. And so we're really excited about it. We were in this position that no one feels sorry for you about pre-pandemic where we just couldn't keep up with our store traffic. We were so busy and booming. And so I'm embarrassed to say like we hadn't probably positioned ourselves from a technology perspective to think about these other sales channels as well as we should have. But boy, did we scramble right when it hit. And luckily, we had a good team and we were able to get the right pieces in place to take big leaps forward there. And now it's the future. It's the future for us. I mean, somebody told me that ice cream is like, one of the top three most delivered items in the United States. And that of all of the kind of things like indulgences that people want to have delivered, just different food and treats and alcohol, everything, ice cream is at like the top of the list right now. So it's a perfect combination. And if somebody listening wanted to get into the direct consumer market, what have you learned over the last couple of years? What would be some best practices and some mistakes to avoid? Yeah, we do two things. We ship ice cream in the mail on dry ice, which, man, if you want to take on a hard business, it's <laughs> 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 not for the, the faint of heart. And if anything goes wrong, your shipment melts. And then we work with third-party delivery companies to just deliver locally, which, believe it or not, is much more reliable and easier to do. So for us, I think... It's all a logistics game at that point. And so investing in the right people and infrastructure and really good folks to review your contracts, that all becomes your competitive edge all of a sudden. And being really creative, because making all of those channels work from a profitability perspective is probably the hardest thing. And then turning on the right product mix and you know, it's a whole new path forward on marketing. You're not showing up at the local uh, neighborhood council meeting to market anymore. So it's all performance marketing. It's just a whole new day. And I think a lot of money can go, you know, good money after bad really fast if you don't have the right resources in place on that front. As you guys look to expand, you're in charge of the expansion. I'm curious to know, as you expand and as you expand nationally, and as you've expanded already a couple of dozen times, plus some. I'm super curious to know, when you look at locations, what are you looking at? What defines a great location? Because I don't think I could move to Portland, look at a restaurant and be like, that's the spot. That's going to be the perfect spot for me. But you're charged <laughs> with doing that nationally. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. I will say that's one of the great superpowers I was granted while working at Starbucks, just because I did that for so many years. I was out traveling the United States looking for sites with our real estate team and opening. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. So we would learn kind of what the signs were. I mean, gosh, before we opened in Miami, Tyler, my cousin and I were going there for four years. For us, it takes two, three, four years of a lot of time on the ground there getting to know what works. But at the end of the day, we're looking for really great neighborhood gathering places. 
on high streets, usually surrounded by great restaurants and shops in neighborhoods that will be supportive of us. And thank goodness we have gotten a lot of support and we are pretty high volume. And so we can make that all pencil, but it's definitely an art and a science. We work always with a local broker, always, 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 who knows the city well. I get to know them really well. (laughs) Spend a lot of time with them. It's a big trust game. I think how you treat your people is the most important thing in setting up, you know, our company anyway. But selecting real estate is a very close second. And man, I mean, you're in bed with these guys for a long time. And as the pandemic demonstrated to us, if you don't have good relationships and partnerships with your landlords, it really can come back to bite you. So it's important. You guys have raised a ton of investor capital. I mean, not relative to, let's say, a tech company, but for ice cream, (laughs) it's a lot in the tens of millions of dollars, which is absolutely incredible. And from your perspective, What do you think makes a food concept investable? Gosh, that's a great question. Similarly to real estate, our investors, I got to know them over a matter of years, years and years and years in both of them. So Carp Riley is one of our investors. They were the first company to invest in us. And then EHI, which is Danny Meyer's company, is the second. Alan Carp came in. I think a friend introduced me to him when we had three ice cream shops. And for probably two or three years, every time we were in the same city, we would meet up and talk about the business. And he always was so helpful and inspiring. I met Danny Meyer when we were at his, they offer a hospitality course in New York City, and we were there and got to know each other. So for me, part of it, I guess, part of my answer is relationships and values. And, you know, do they do they uh, believe in you as a founder? And then for us, Carp Riley signed on after we had opened in LA. So we had a home run in Portland, but could you make this, can this travel? Did it work outside of your home city? Which was a resounding yes. So I think they got that. They got really excited about that. Um, we had tremendous economics, really great show on the financial side over an extended period of time. So it all kind of clicked in. I feel really, really lucky. But again, what the pandemic showed me is when your chips are down and your back's up against a wall, all that comes into question. If you don't have the same values with your investors, I think a lot of my brethren entrepreneurs were caught really flat-footed with some problems on their hands. Our investors were there to support us through and through, which I'm so grateful for. What did you learn about yourself and your business through the fundraising process? I spoke with Eric Oberholzer and David Dressler from Tinder Greens. And those guys fundraised from three years before they opened the restaurant through almost exit, right? Over the course of nine years, they never stopped fundraising. And one of the reasons other than money was because he said, when you work with VCs, you get incredible insight into the most effective ways to run businesses simply based on what they choose to focus on what they think are business fundamentals. And so I'm curious, through the fundraising process and through the experience of working with these partners, what did you learn about becoming a better business person in your restaurant? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the first thing Carp Riley helped me with when they came on were, you know, like, let's get your store build out costs down. Let's really be smart about what key leaders you're bringing in finance, HR, how to structure that so that you're looking around the corner and hopefully 
seeing some of the risks <laughs> on the financial and HR side that come at all businesses, you know, and how can you buffer yourself against that? And then I think when it comes to some of this e-commerce and direct, they were really good about helping us structure our business and bring in the right partners and infrastructure to set that up as well. So every step of the way, I mean, these guys, gosh, they bring their full resources to bear and help think through some critical decisions, which is really, really nice. They're good partners. Let's talk about other kinds of partnerships. You do a ton of strategic partnerships and you have a strong brand, but you've also helped to build that brand through relationships with other people. And so what is your philosophy on strategic partnerships and how do you go about creating them? Yeah, it was interesting because my early days at Starbucks, like co-branding was a big no-no. And my philosophy when we started Salt and Straw was like, let's almost turn that on its head and make this all about everybody else. And we're almost like the conduit to promote all these other brands and be a discovery point for our customers. So, so we've always done that. And it's, I think for Tyler as my cousin, he makes all the ice cream and comes up with all the flavors. I think it's what's fueling him and getting him so excited 10 years in are these partnerships and gosh, they range from, a small chocolatier or the Oregon Symphony to partnering with The Rock, which is such an honor. <laughs> but so I don't mean to be trite, but so much of it, again, goes back to that idea of values. And is this somebody I would want to have in my house to dinner with my family? It's an important visor that we use. But to me, it's all about like, does one plus one equal 11? And how can we make this better for both of us through this collaboration? How much of it, if you were to split it up, how much of it is Disney reaching out to you? And how much of it is you reaching out to Disney? Did you actively pursue these <laughs> partnerships? I mean, it's a valid point. Disney. Ha! Yeah. <laughs> We're about to open in downtown Disney. We're in Disney Springs, so we're very excited about that. The Disney thing was pretty incredible. So there was a gentleman who was a customer at our Abbott Kinney store. And when they knew that they wanted to open up the bidding process for an ice cream location in downtown Disneyland, he threw our hat in the kind of circle. So he invited us. So and luckily, we didn't know this because apparently we were up against all these other really big brands. And, you know, when you roll into Disney, they're not messing around. So we walk into a room with like 30 people to do a one hour presentation. And apparently we found out later that most everyone in the room was very annoyed because they felt like we were wasting their time. They didn't want us there. They didn't think we could handle it. I didn't know what a big sales job we had to do, but we won. By the end of the meeting, we had won them over and they were really excited about the partnership. We've been told by Disney that they think we're the busiest ice cream shop in the world. Wow. <laughs> that site is really, really, really busy. So when it came time to open, you know, they were looking to open something else in Disney Springs, they called us. So in both cases, they had called us, which was beyond, 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 beyond. And we're so excited. But we had to do a lot of hustling to earn that and be really good partners. I want to talk about Tyler for a minute. Anthony Bourdain said that the religion of every restaurant is consistency. But your ice cream flavors vary from location to location, from day to day. And so I'm curious, when you face out, when you talk to your customers, what is your brand promise? What are they counting on? 
every time they come to your restaurant. I mean, one of the things we talk about offering is a taste adventure. You're going through your day and to have that moment of like, oh, I'm going to try bone marrow ice cream with smoked cherry. This can't work. And then you see people standing there literally pounding their fists on the counter going, that is the best thing that really works. And then they may say, I still want my sea salt caramel, which is awesome. We love that. But where else can you go into a restaurant and just like say, I just want one bite of this one thing, but then I'm going to order the steak. So it's kind of a cool experience from that perspective. And we do a lot of talking with our team about offering a moment of full face attention is what we call it. Like you're with this person. I heard a customer the other day describing it like a wine tasting. He said, this is like a wine tasting. I get to learn about all these ingredients and flavors and what's new. And so, yeah, I think kind of like a taste adventure is what we're offering. That's what's consistent. We always have our classics. They're always there for you. We never change them. But then we have our seasonal flavors that change every single month. And it's fun that there's different ice creams at different stores. I mean, we've had people take vacations from Seattle all the way down to San Diego to try all the different ice cream flavors (laughs) at different stores on the West Coast. It's fun. It's hard, though. Oh, I can imagine. There's a reason people don't do it this way. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about you. What I've said in the past, and it's still very true, is my career would have taken a very different trajectory had I asked myself two questions at the outset of the first thing I opened, which was a bar in Hollywood. And I said, how much money do I want to make? And how do I want to spend my days? And I never asked those questions. I mean, I did eventually, but I was like 10 or 15 years into the career at that point. And the answers surprised me and scared me because neither one really reflected exactly where I was in that moment. And so initially, you start a singular location with your cousin. And there was intention there, and I know there was. But at this stage in the game, are you spending your days 10 years later doing what you want to do? Absolutely. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I have the most fun job in the world. Every day, I literally look at my calendar and I'm like, I'm not exaggerating when I say that I mutter to myself, I can't believe I get to do this. And that's not to say that there aren't really, really hard things and sometimes things that are a drag, (laughs) because for sure there are, but I couldn't have dreamed I would ever be this lucky to get to do this. And I was never the person, I remember, especially early in my company's history, I would go to all these entrepreneur meetings, a lot of people in the tech world and different segments from all over. And they would say, well, I'm going to grow my company to 10 million and then I'm going to sell it. And that like they had all these plans. And I was like, gosh, I don't know. I'm just hoping to open this next great location. And I've always just really been focused instead of some kind of big, I don't know, exit or event, instead really focused on the next best thing for the company and what's feeding me and what's fun about this and to make sure that it's really good for the people around me. So, yeah, I left a pretty cush job to start this company. (laughs) I mean, I was probably making a good amount of money and spending my time, though, probably not doing things that were really that fun to me. And I had a hunch that kind of betting on myself and doing this would be the right calling for me. This is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. 
Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? My favorite piece of advice is to tell people not to take advice. I mean, if I had taken all the advice that was given to me, I would have never started this company. I cashed in my 401k, which you should never do, (laughs) and started an ice cream company in rainy Portland, Oregon. A female founder, which people really frowned upon. I can tell you stories someday about that. But I think it's such a fine line. Like we were talking about working with investors and getting their advice. And there's all this advice out there. And it's great to know about, but it can also be really distracting and make you doubt yourself. And I do think that's especially true for women. Like I told you, I had this idea in 1996, and then I finally started it in 2011. And guys will wake up in the morning and often say, like, I have the best idea. I can't wait to share it with the world. (laughs) And women will carry it around with them instead until it's perfect before they share it. And I'm really trying to encourage women to find their inner guy and get out there with their ideas and stay true to them. And be careful how much you listen to other people and other people's advice. That's Kim Malik. For more on Salt and Straw, visit saltandstraw.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.